So a lot of ministry going on here that you can partake of. So whenever Cheryl's ready. Okay. So we're going to continue in the book of Luke. Let me say that again. We're going to continue in the book of Romans, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. I can't wait to hear what I have to say. I better get my glasses on. So follow along with me, and we're going to basically be studying verses 5 through 12, but we're going to read the first 12 verses of uh, Romans chapter 4. So follow along. What what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Underline that in your Bibles. Remember that. Not what does man say. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wage, it is not reckoned as a favor, but is what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works or earning it, verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That should all have all of us on our knees, those few verses right there, church. Every one of us. Verse 9. Is this the blessing then upon the circumcised? Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? How was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to him. And the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So you'll notice a lot of that terminology there. you got to remember, he was talking to this young church, mostly Jewish people in Rome, who were also being taught that, you know, you've got to keep the law, you've got to keep all this. So he's trying to unpack that for them. So let's dig in and see what the scriptures say. So... Slide 5, we're going to start at verse 1. We're just going to do a little tiny review and then jump into the main text. So, in the New Living Translation, Romans 4, 1. This is just a repeat from back when I taught the beginning of the first five verses. Verse 1, Abraham was humanly speaking the father, or I'm sorry, the founder of our Jewish nation. 
What did he discover about being made right with God? Now, we've been learning here in chapter 4, back when I taught those first five verses, Paul's purpose, which was to show that in the Old Testament times, as well as the New Testament times, God's way of saving people has always been the same. <clears throat> Never forget that. Church, listen, there are not more ways to be saved. There are not two different ways to be saved. So Paul is establishing the point that God's way of making men righteous by imputing the righteousness of Christ to them and justifying them by faith in His only Son and forgiving them was exactly the same in both dispensations, the Old Testament time and the New Testament times. Slide 6, verse 2. Paul picked up the argument there. He says, listen, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And in the New Living, verse slide 7. If Abraham's good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have something to boast about or brag about. But that was not God's way. Slide 8, jumping up to verse 5. <clears throat> but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And slide 8 also in the New Living. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, not because of they earning it or buying it, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. That, that's powerful right there, church. As I said in our last time together, this is one of the strongest verses in all of the scriptures concerning justification ever being made. Hear me this morning. If any person were able to save himself or herself by their works or their efforts, then salvation would then be apart from grace. And the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross would have been in vain. But again, Paul is making it very clear to us that this is not how we are saved. He says, but to the one who does not work, the one who does not try to get into heaven or get saved by his or her own efforts, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Slide 9. Just so you can track with me, what does the word justification mean? I hope you write this in your personal Bibles. This is important. Justification is the act, church, whereby God himself pardons a sinner and accepts that sinner as right in his sight. That is important. There are churches that teach you have to earn your way or you have to be baptized to be saved or you have to do this or that. That's not what the Bible says. Justification is the act alone whereby God pardons that sinner and accepts that sinner as right in his sight. Church, this is a legal declaration that was given by the Father that even though we are all sinners, we have all broken God's law, we all deserve death, he still will regard us as right and just. <clears throat> that is the most amazing thing. That's just mind-blowing. He gives us 
the righteousness of his only unique son, Jesus Christ, credits that son's perfect life of obedience to you and I, the sinner, and then pronounces us just and accepted in his sight. We didn't earn that, and we certainly don't deserve that. That's grace. Hear me this morning. Until a person comes to see himself or herself as ungodly and confesses that he or she is ungodly, that person cannot be saved. Why? Because that person is still trusting in his or her's own goodness. So then you are justified, you are pardoned, and you are declared right the moment that you come into a saving faith in Christ alone for your salvation. The moment you transfer in trusting in your works or something else to trusting alone in Christ, that's when you are saved. Your mouth is stopped. You're not trusting in anything or anyone anymore to get into heaven. I want you to think about the person that Paul is describing here in this verse. Notice in the text that this person doesn't work, meaning that person really has no good works to show. That person cannot recommend himself or herself for anything. Because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that does good, Romans 3, 10, and 11. That person is an ungodly person, a sinner. There is no work that we can do to be credited to our account to give us any credit for righteousness. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23. For those of us who are truly born again, who have come to a saving faith in Christ, who look back, we can all clearly see that we were never, ever godly. The scriptures are clear. It is God alone who makes people right with the Father. So justification, that act where God pardons a sinner and accepts that sinner as right, is 100% church, entirely God's act, and is never ever based on anything we could ever do, ever. We are declared right just the way we are, ungodly people. Nothing we could do to work our way into heaven. Hear me this morning. We're not justified or pardoned or declared right because we get baptized. That doesn't make you right. Or because we go to church or tithe. That doesn't make you right with God. Tithing doesn't save you. Being baptized doesn't save you. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Being born to Christian parents doesn't save you. We are all guilty before God. We're all born outside of the garden, church. We have nothing in of ourselves to offer God, nothing that we can pay Him with. But we are pronounced free and acquitted before the Father only one way, church, and that is through the righteousness that has been provided for us on our behalf through Jesus Christ. I hope and pray that you are hearing this this morning. It is Christ alone who justifies the ungodly. That's me, that's all of us. So justification, as I just said, is a legal declaration by the Father so that he is now acquitting the sinner 
and putting into his account his son's righteousness so that sinner can now stand blameless before the Father. He is pronounced free. That's, that's God's work, church. It's a legal act of God. It doesn't do anything to the person. It doesn't change him. But it puts into his account or her account the righteousness of Christ. Just think about it. Every filthy, rotten thing that you and I have ever said or done, every horrible, horrific thing we've ever done, God takes all of that from us and he places it on his son. Am I right? And he takes everything, all that perfection and righteousness of his son, and he goes, here, sinner, I'm going to put it in your account. Boom. So when you drop dead, you stand before the Father only because of what Christ has done. And then he puts the sinner, that robe of righteousness around the sinner and says, I'm going to take you to the Father. Why would we want anything else? Slide 10. I like what John Piper says here. Let me read Piper to you. Piper says, We do not cause the new birth. God causes the new birth. Any spiritually good thing that we do, church, listen to this. <clears throat> Any spiritually good thing that you and I do is a result of the new birth. It is not the cause of the new birth. Stop trying to think that you can be good enough that God will say, well, I'll let you slide in. Any spiritually good thing that we do, that's the result of the new birth, not the cause of it. This means that the new birth is taken out of our hands. It's not under our control, church. And so it confronts us with our helplessness and our absolute dependence on something outside of ourselves. That's God. Now let's look at verses 6 through 8, slide 11. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. <clears throat> Verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. Let me read that again. Well, Pastor Jack, you don't know my background. I've done time in jail. I've done time in prison. I've done all these horrible, horrible things. Yeah. That's what you have done. But what does the Bible say? Forget it. What does the Bible say? The Bible is the final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. Not what you've done or not what you feel. What does it say? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been what? Forgiven. And whose sins have been what? Covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Now, if you're like me, I don't deserve any of that. I don't know about you, but I don't deserve any of that. I deserve the opposite. Look at slide 12. Again, Paul, knowing who his audience is, he's like, you know what? I'm going to show them this back in the Old Testament. Because the Jews at least thought of that as authoritative. What does David say? How blessed is those whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity or credit iniquity, and whose spirit there's no deceit. Slide 13. I like it in the New Living. I make no apology for using the New Living Translation. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, 
whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. You see it? There it is, right there. Whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Church, in the first few verses of chapter 4, back you know, a couple weeks when we covered it, Paul was referring to Father Abraham, and now we see him referring to what David himself has to say. Why? Well, David knew, or Paul, I should say Paul knew, that the Jews looked back at David as a great king. They also knew that the wonderful promise of the Messiah was made to David and that David was a man after God's own heart. Think about it. The guy cheated, slept with Uriah's wife, committed adultery. Think of all that. Wanted to cover it up, so you know what? I'm going to put Uriah on the front line and have him killed. He's going to go into battle. David was a sinner like us. Think about it. So Paul is establishing the fact that David completely understood that justification is only by faith alone. As Psalm 32 clearly revealed to us, David understood God's saving grace. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven or his disobedience is forgiven. David knew that only God alone, not the priest, but God alone could purify him or create in him a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within him. David knew that only God could wash away the sin and blot out all of his iniquities. And that is just the same for you and I today. He knew that God alone could create in him that clean heart. So then, what can you and I glean from, what what can we draw out, exegete, what can we draw out of these scriptures? How does it concern you and I today in 2022? How can a person who is a sinner, be blessed by God. Pastor Jack, you don't understand. I'm, I'm too horrible of a person. God can't save me. When did you become better than God? I know I'm not. Church, listen. Even though a person is a sinner, broken God's law, guilty before God of countless sins, True of all of us today in 2022. God has said, if you place your faith and trust in Him, in Christ alone, God will not put those sins to your account. These sins are covered by the crimson blood of Christ. They are blotted out. And don't make any mistake about it. The very blood that ran into the veins of Christ on earth was the blood of God. One drop of that blood could wash it away. Blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not credit or impute iniquity. Or, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. What do you think in your heart about that this morning? I want you to really, really let that ruminate in you this morning. The more you read the scriptures, the more you see nothing in my hands I pray simply to the cross I claim amen do you have peace in your heart this morning that all of your sins have been forgiven slide 14 
Paul, talking to the church at Ephesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Slide 15, the NLT. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Do you see a church? The person whose sin debt is forgiven is a person whom the Lord will never look at those sins again. Never notice how in our minds we can sometimes find ourselves going back and looking at some of the horrible, filthy, rotten, sinful things that we've done in our past. And yet, what does the text say? He remembers our sin no more. That, that's mind-blowing, church. That, that should excite you. Do you notice there's no double jeopardy here? God doesn't say, I'm going to undie on the cross and throw all your sin at you. Because the Father has put all of your sin on His Son. Because His Son was that ransom that was paid for your sins and mine. So those sins will never be charged to you again as a crime against God. So as we stand there on trial before the Father, our sin debt is canceled. You know, the Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds we did in the body, whether good or bad. But if your sin debt is paid by Christ, when you stand there, wiped clean. Satan, the great accuser, the great accuser, professional accuser, and debt collector cannot bring those charges to your account ever again. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. God has told us he'll never look at them again. This church has been the Father's method of dealing with all of our sin from Genesis to the end of time. It has been his plan from all eternity. You know what's amazing? Billions of years ago when God has already always existed, can you, can you think about this? He already knew that a billion years ago to a certain time he was going to come. Christ was going to condescend and clothe himself in humanity and die for his bride. And he knew that date was coming. So they planned it. That's mind-blowing. Church, we have learned that this is how God dealt with Abraham, David, all of us. We have the proof of the doctrine of justification by faith only. I'm going to say it again until I drop it over. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen. The scripture alone is the final authority that tells us that. And to God alone be the glory. No boasting. No other way for you and I to be declared right. Slide 16 and 17. Well, where does it say that again, Pastor Jack? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans 3, 24. Being justified, being pardoned and made right as a what? What does it say? Do we have to earn it? No, it says by, as a gift. How? By his what? By his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Through the redemption, which is Christ Jesus. Slide 17. How was it accomplished? Namely, that God was personally present in Christ 
reconciling the world to himself, not counting their disobedience, their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. All throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, you can see it's plainly there. God took all of our sin, and instead of sitting there keeping a ledger, you know, we're good when people hurt us, and -and so-and-so did this, and -and so-and-so did that, and -and so-and-so did this. Do you remember what you said to me three years, 24 hours, 17 minutes ago? We're very good at that. I'm never going to forgive you, right? We're good at that, but what does God say? He does not keep an account of our sins that we would have to pay for him. He did something amazing. He took all of that and he put it on his son. And then what else did he do in Isaiah 53? He loved you so much that he punished his only son. Read Isaiah 53. He punished his only son for you. Now I want that to sink in and ruminate inside of you this morning. That is just absolutely incredible. Do we grasp it yet, church? Christ came into the world to accomplish his father's plan. Well, where do we see that in Scripture? I'm glad you asked again. Slide 18 and 19 and 20. What is slide 18? John 17, 4 and 5. I think Dr. Carter illuminated to this verse in his sermon last week. I glorified you on earth. That you is capital. I glorified you, Father, on earth. I accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Don't you let any false prophet tell you that Jesus Christ is some created being. That makes it clear that there was never a time ever where God the Son did not coexist with the Father. You can't escape that verse. I don't care who you are. Glorify me together with yourself with the glory I had with you, with you before the world was. That's amazing. What else does Paul tell us in Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Physically alive, he's talking about you were spiritually dead. You had a dead spiritual life. You were living in your trespasses and sins. You, in which you formerly walked, your peripatio, your, your way of life was according to the course of this world. It was according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And of course, Paul said, we too also did the same thing, indulging in the flesh. We were also, by nature, children of wrath. That's verse 3. NLT, verse 20, chapter, slide 20. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. You obeyed the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. You see that, church? Without Christ, you and I are hopeless and helpless. It is what God did with our sin and that he punished them in the Son. It is what God did when he put his Son's righteousness to our accounts. 
It is all done to us. And a person who is truly saved comes to the realization of that. So then, a Christian, a true follower of Yahweh, realizes this. And he realizes that he cannot do anything or she cannot do anything to save himself or herself. Nothing to boast about. Church, this morning, have we now come to realize that we can do nothing to make ourselves a Christian? You cannot, and this is where some of my friends really get angry at me, you cannot make yourself a Christian. Salvation is entirely, 100%, a free gift from God, being justified freely by His grace. You just read it. Keep that in your mind there this morning. It is a gift that comes to all of us who are ungodly. Let me ask you some questions this morning. Slide 21. And I, these, you have to answer these between you and God. But as I was going through this message and hiding under my table because I'm a filthy sinner like everyone else, I realized these questions came to my mind. Do you believe, as the Scriptures teach, that you become a Christian just as you are a sinner through what the Father has done in His Son on your behalf? That's an important question that you have to answer. Now you can't say, well, you know, I'm going to clean up my life first, then I'll become a Christian. That's never going to happen because you and I sin in thoughts, words, deeds, actions, and motives every single day. We sin in our prayers. How about this? Or, <clears throat> I'll stop using drugs, then I'll become a Christian. I'll stop getting drunk, then I'll become a Christian. Listen, that's insanely ridiculous. That is totally ridiculous. That's not, it's not possible. The only one that can clean up your life is God the Holy Spirit. Hear me. That kind of thinking says that you still feel you need to do something to make yourself right with God before He can save you. Mm -mm. Hear me this morning. There is absolutely nothing you and I can do or ever could do to bring to God to make us get saved. Because as I've been teaching you, it is God that declares the sinner right. It is God that pardons the sinner and accepts him as right. And He accepts the sinner just where that sinner's at. He does, he, right, he does not wait for you to make yourself godly first and then save you. He doesn't do that. Don't believe the lie. We can do nothing. We have no works to offer him, nothing we can boast about. Slide 22. <clears throat> do you realize that you are ungodly and that you are guilty before God? I know I do. Do you realize that you deserve nothing but hell and that you have nothing in yourself to offer God to save you? That's me. How about you? You know, God, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to stop stealing, Lord, and then, I'm, and then I'm going to come to you. I'm going to try to clean all this mess in my life up first. No. You know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so if he indwells me, he gives me the power to go from this direction now to walk in obedience with him in this direction. Amen. Amen? Hear me this morning. God in his wonderful grace and mercy 
And think about it, church. Sent his only unique son into this world, this broken world, to deliver you and save you by his perfect life of obedience to the Father. It was his atoning sacrificial death on that cross where he took every filthy, rotten, horrible thing that you and I have ever done and placed it on his son. And his son received the punishment that I deserved. I deserved that punishment, not him. You deserved it, not him. Slide 23. What is this doctrine of atonement again? Atonement, and you can mark this and write this down in your Bibles, because I know you all carry your Bibles with you. Atonement is a reconciliation of two alienated parties, the restoration of a broken relationship. It is accomplished by making amends, blotting out offenses, and giving satisfaction for wrongs done. And as I said it before, that is exactly what the Father did for us through His Son. That is exactly what He did. In Christ, God reconciled you and I to Himself, actually overcoming His own hostility that our sins provoked. And as I also share with you in our last time together, we see that God's grace is grounded in His love. It's centered on His Son. It is His wonderful grace that gives us the faith we need to believe Him and repent of our sins. Do you realize that faith is a gift? Man, how many people here have ever been to a funeral? I've been to a funeral. Have you ever seen a dead person come alive and all of a sudden have everything okay? Dead people can't make themselves saved. Faith is a gift given to us so that when we hear the gospel, the eugalion, we can repent and believe and place our faith and trust in Christ. It, it is a wonderful grace that is given to us. It's, it's His grace that makes those who believe His own children. And finally, church, think about it. It is this wonderful grace that produces in all of us this growing faith that is seeking for His glory. Think about it. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, you are to do all to the glory of God. I want you to think about the way that you live each day. Are the decisions you make ones that you run by Him before you just go ahead and make them, before you make purchases or do things? Or do you get up in the morning and say, Lord, I'm here. Use me the way you want to use me. You know, I am the object of your grace. I only have 15 more pages of notes. We'll be done by four. It's all right. Slide 24. Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Let's finish this up. I know you all hungry. Is this the blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? <clears throat> For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or not circumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he may be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be credited to him. Slide 25, verse 12. And the father of circumcision to those who not, who not only are a, of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Why did Paul ask this question here in verse 9? 
Again, Paul knows his Jewish audience. He knows how they think. Let's keep in mind slide 26, what Paul states about himself. Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. Circumcised. The eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. <clears throat> it's important that we understand Paul is fully aware that many of the Jews that he was penning this letter to back then believed that salvation was based solely on being obedient to the law and being circumcised. They felt that their eternal security rested in that right. Hey, I'm circumcised. You know, the Ten Commandments was given to us. We have all these rites and rituals. And he knows that this belief was so strong in the Jewish culture that many of the Christians, the Jews, carried this belief into the early church. So Paul's been trying to get across to them that no ceremony, no human act of any kind can bring salvation to any person. So he's going back, and he's going to go back, as we've been seeing in the Old Testament, to show that your circumcision doesn't save you. Circumcision has never saved a Jew, and it can never save a Gentile. So we have to remember this. I think it's important to again understand what circumcision meant to a Jew. Way back in Romans 2 when I was teaching, verses 25 through 29, <clears throat> you can go back and look at that yourself when you have the opportunity. But just to give you a little synopsis here, Paul was fully aware of what the Jews were thinking, which is why he's now dealing with this thing called circumcision. They were thinking to themselves. This is what they were thinking. You know, Paul, God gave us this sign and this seal of circumcision. And we Jews are the ones he gave it to, not those dog Gentiles over there. So, Paul, how, how can you say that we are under God's wrath? How can we be treated the same way as those unbelieving dog Gentiles, those idol worshipers were? Yeah, Paul, we've sinned. And yeah, we've failed numerous times. But we are still His people, and God would never destroy His own people. And circumcision proves this. We are the heirs to the Abrahamic covenant. So Paul wants them to understand that a person who trusts in circumcision or any other ceremonial law or work literally nullifies the work of Christ on their behalf. <clears throat> You're placing yourself under the law, and you must obey it with absolute perfection. And we all know that that is totally impossible for anyone other than Christ to do it. So now we need to ask the question, why did the Jews still feel that they needed to trust in circumcision? Well, the rabbis back in that day and back in the Old Testament day, those rabbis would look at Genesis 17, 10 through 14 as their proof text to say that obedience to circumcision was a way to please God and be right with Him. And Paul being brilliant, used their own argument right against them. What did he do? Paul uses this very passage to reveal to them that Abraham was never made right with God because he was circumcised. Why? Well, Abraham was already made right with God well before he was circumcised. And the chronology of the book of Genesis backs that up. When Abraham was circumcised, church, his son Ishmael, was right around the age of 13. And if you remember Genesis 17, Abraham was 99 years old. We learned about how Sarah laughed. You're going to, I'm going to have a kid at this age? <laughs> right? 
So Abraham was already 99. You know, Ishmael was 13. We already know from Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham was already declared right with God. Ishmael wasn't even born yet. That's Genesis 16, 2 through 4. So if we do the simple math, Abraham was declared right with God about 14 years before he was ever circumcised. So what can we conclude? Abraham was already in God's covenant of grace long before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign. It was a physical mark of identity for the covenant people of Israel at that time. And it was supposed to be a reminder to the Jews that God's covenant promise to them would be fulfilled, or the Abrahamic covenant. Slide 27. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. He will circumcise the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you might live. Church, it seems that the Lord was far more interested in the cutting away of sin from the sinner's heart. Every male child of Israel was a living testimony that men's hearts needed spiritual circumcision and cleansing. For you and I today, when you and I are baptized after, after we come to a saving faith in Christ, our baptism symbolizes our death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, it symbolizes Jesus' redemptive act on our behalf. We remember that sacrifice till He comes again. But we know that neither of these ordinances that we practice today have any saving merit in themselves. Do not believe the lie that when you are baptized, you are saved. That is a lie from the pit of hell, or everything we just read was a lie to us. I'm going to believe what God says. When you come to a saving faith in Christ, then you're baptized. That is your living infomercial of what Christ has accomplished for you and that you are identifying yourself with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. They, these were outward demonstrations that reveal the inner heart that understands that our salvation is entirely God's act and we cannot be saved by performing them just like being circumcised could not save them. Didn't save Abraham, didn't save David. <clears throat> so we're made right only through the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It's the only way we are declared right in the Father's eyes. Slide 28, we're just about done. He might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So, we already can see from the word of God that Abraham was considered the father of Jews, but Paul takes it further. He's clearly referring to all those who are Gentiles and non-Jews, and he's driving home this point that Abraham is the father of all who believe. So again, church, circumcision has nothing to do with being saved or declared right with God. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, that's not how you're made right with God. And the proof of this is found again in the text. Slide 29. He completes verse 12 with this. And the father of circumcision to those who 
not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith, follows in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. So Paul's teaching us here that Abraham is also the father of those who are circumcised, who are in the faith, who believe Christ. Slide 30. Finishes the qualification, but also, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I hope we see that in the text this morning. Those who follow in the steps of faith. How's your faith this morning? When everything is piled high against you, you know, and you feel like God has walked away and abandoned you, and woe is me, and how horrible things are, and look at this. How's your faith? How's your faith? We, we seem to forget that we're only here a short time. We're only here a short time, church. How do we sum it up? Let me close it out. Slide 31, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or circumcision means anything but faith working through love. Church, the Jews hoped of being made right with God. They were basing it sadly on ceremony and law. It was a vain attempt on their part to somehow think they needed to complete the work of Christ, which they felt was incomplete. And, and we struggle with that too. How could God love me? Man, all those things I did, how could he ever love me? I have to do all these things. I got to clean. I got to stop drinking. I got to stop getting high. I got to stop doing all that. It's not what the Bible says. Ask yourself, how does that thinking show up in your life? You know, there are people who come to church week after week, month after month, year after year. They come into church in this vain attempt to somehow feel they are doing what's necessary to keep their salvation or to earn it. Well, if God sees me show up at church, that's a brownie point. Or perhaps they put some money in the offering plate. Well, that'll please God. But Paul says here, neither the ceremony of circumcision or those who are uncircumcised means anything, but faith working through love. Hear me this morning. If you are truly a believer, if you have already come to a saving faith in Christ, if you have come to believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and you believe that the only way that you will ever step into glory is to what Christ has already done for you, you already possess that imputed righteousness of Christ to your account. It's already been placed in your account. You're already made right by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else for you to do to add to it because you can't. The outward demonstration such as circumcision or baptism is only to reflect, listen, what's already been taking place inwardly in your heart. Faith working through love. Not working through self-effort. Hear me this morning. Your works, your good deeds should be an outflowing and product of your faith in Christ. It is never a substitute for it. You do the things you do because you want to glorify God. Whether you're working in the kitchen or mopping the floor or cleaning the bathrooms or doing whatever you do, you're doing it because you want to honor and glorify God. 
when we're up here playing, it is not self-glorying. We're not getting billions of dollars and following all over the country. This is to show God that we love Him and to glorify Him. You were given a gift and a talent to use to bring glory and honor to God, not to try to use it to get into heaven. Faith working through love. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I know I hit you with a lot, or as my father-in-law says, that's a lot to fit in a year.